Let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Father, we do anticipate when we will praise your faithfulness of old in the life to come. And we are grateful for weekly occasions to do it now in this life together with your people. So Father, we pray that you would meet us now through your word, stabilize our souls by filling them with Christ by your spirit. And Father, I pray that you would loosen our love for this world and for the trappings of this life and instead give us a greater still anticipation and deep longing for eternity, for the return of Christ. Fit, fit us, Father, for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Just over a year ago, I had a conversation with a student who was, a college student here in Louisville, who was uh, doing the deciding on a church thing, and he was considering Kenwood among some of his options. And you know, it was clear he was leaning against it, which is totally fine. This is not the church for everyone. There are so many good churches in Louisville. Um, but when he listed some of the things factoring into his decision, he commented that he thought Kenwood was too ideal, meaning, I think, that uh, he perceived things to be um, too easy and therefore not very real. And I didn't say this at the time, but what I was thinking was, I think that means you just haven't been around very long and you don't know very many people. Uh, no church is spared from the realities of life or from the effects of sin. And frankly, this week has been a reminder of this in the lives of many of us. So I hope nobody here is under the impression that um, people at Kenwood don't suffer, that there's no one in here right now suffering. I mean, just let me give you an idea of some of the things going on in the lives of our people. Uh, and, and these are things that I talked about with people or heard about this week. So within the last seven days, a member whose mother received a grim cancer diagnosis, uh, someone losing a job with no warning, a member going through a, a sustained period of darkness that makes it hard to function, someone watching his parents' marriage of 30 years crumble because of infidelity, marriages either in a state of repair or a state of emergency. And those are things from this week. And those are just the things that I know about. Um, there are so many more. So sure, by God's mercy, I think we're a healthy church. Uh, there's no high level dysfunction that, that people need to endure, I hope. But uh, we live in a fallen world. We are all sinful. We live around sinful people. You have sinful pastors. And bad things happen. We're not exempt from, from trials and from suffering. So some of us are in the middle of a trial right now, like this morning. <clears throat> some of us are on the cusp of one, and we don't know it yet. And all of us uh, know someone who is right in the middle of one. So I think it's worth taking some time to think about these matters. So please turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 in your Bibles. If you don't have one, you can grab uh, the one in the pew in front of you. So 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be in verses 6 through 9. 
And in those verses, 6 through 9, Peter gives us a a condensed theology of trials uh, that can be summed up this way. The grief of trials in verse 6, the genuineness of faith in verse 7, and the glory of Christ in verses 8 and 9. So the grief of trials, the genuineness of faith, and the glory of Christ. So we're going to start in verse 6, which may seem like a strange place to start in this passage, so let me kind of get us into it. Uh, Peter begins this letter by describing the, the miracle of salvation. So starting in verse 3, if you want to follow along, I know Jim read this earlier, but I'm going to read this part again. Starting in verse 3, Peter says that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So if you're a Christian, you have been born again. And with your new birth comes an inheritance. And what what Peter says is that this inheritance, your salvation, is, is locked away in heaven for you. And just as sure as Jesus rose from the dead, it's going to be kept there, secure in heaven while you live here by faith. So that's why Peter begins verse 6 the way he does when he says, in this you rejoice. So your, your future is guaranteed, and in this, he says, you rejoice. And it's one of those statements that it just sounds like a, a description of something that's true, but it chastens us a bit. Uh, it's a standard that he's setting. He, he expects that Christians will be glad to be Christians. And that's what leads us into our first point of our passage, the grief of trials. So after looking ahead to the future, Peter, he comes back, he re-enters the present in verse 6. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So now, for a little while, he says. And this is not Peter demeaning the duration of our trials, a little while may mean the entirety of your life. I think of someone like Joni Erickson Tata, a Christian woman, uh, author who was paralyzed from a, a diving accident when she was young. For a little while lasts a very long time for some people. It might not be till we cross over that the little while ends. But one day, regardless of, of the duration here, one day it will feel like a little while. Compared to forever, this life is made up of a series of afflictions that are both light and momentary. And the more the years roll on for us, uh, the more the afflictions we endure, the more this little while makes sense. And the more we'll understand what, what Moses said in Psalm 90, when he said that our years, they come to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. That's just the psalmist's way of saying, now, for a little while, you will endure various trials. And you begin to see why Peter assumes that we rejoice in our future salvation. The more things we are forced to endure here, the more fleeting this life feels and the the better our future looks. And I think the opposite is also true. Uh, At least it's true for me. The more more cushy and comfortable 
This life is, the more permanent it feels, and frankly, the more permanent I want it to be, and the less eager I am for what's to come. But then Peter includes this interesting little clause, if necessary. Well, this is helpful because for something to be deemed necessary, someone has to be deeming it necessary. It requires a person to be uh, deciding whether something is necessary or not. So we are not at the mercy of some impersonal force in the universe. Um, we're not victims of fate. We are uh, children of God. And the trials that come into our lives happen ultimately because God has deemed them necessary. To go further, every little thing that happens to us happens because it has been deemed necessary by an all-powerful, all-loving, and all-wise God. And I don't know about you, but he's the only person I would trust to decide what's necessary for me, for my family, for our church. So if you belong to him, then anything he deems necessary for you, he does so out of love. It's because he loves you and because he has your good in mind. Think about that. If you're a, if you're a Christian... God has never done anything for you that didn't have your eternal good in mind. He always has your, your best interests in mind, and he gets to define what those interests are. And I know that there are things we endure that make that hard to believe. I, I don't want to be glib about that, and I don't know what everyone here is, is walking through. Um, so if you're thinking that there's just no way that God is acting in my best interest right now, I just want to encourage you to try, just try to trust him. He never does anything without a purpose. What he deems necessary, he does because he loves you. And you've got to fight to believe that sometimes. And on the last day, you'll be able to say it only lasted a little while, and maybe we'll see why everything was necessary. And Peter says, he says, if necessary, I think it's safe to assume it is necessary. And Paul said, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. And the writer of Hebrews says, the Father disciplines those he loves. We are not going to escape difficulty. And they come in, in so many different forms. I mean, Peter says, the trials are various. So even, even in that list I, I gave at the beginning, some are the result of our own sins, some are the result of someone else's sin. Some happen because we're being faithful. And then some are just completely outside of our control. So they take various forms that we will not escape. And then still, still in verse 6, Peter says that, he says, Now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And Peter says this, he said that the readers are grieved with no hint at all that it's wrong to be grieved. And that's something that I, I hope we all know and believe. It isn't wrong to feel grief in response to trial. The people respond differently, and our personalities uh, play into it. But I'm afraid that um, some people think that to express grief or even to feel grief is somehow uh, sub-Christian. And they think that if they say something about their difficulty, they need to immediately reaffirm God is good and it's going to be okay. And we want to believe those things all the time, that God works all things together for good. 
but we don't need to skip over sorrow to get there. If you're in pain, that is okay. It is not sinful to admit hardship in the middle of trial. In fact, I don't think it honors God to pretend that trials don't affect us. I think it does honor God when we admit something is very difficult, but we're going to trust him with it. I think that honors God. And as Christians, our grief is not, it cannot be without hope, but neither can it be without honesty. When someone is in the valley of the shadow of death, it does them no good to close their eyes and pretend they're not there. It's better to say, I'd rather not be here, but I know you're with me. <clears throat> and I, I think this, this fear or apprehension that people have of admitting grief comes from a couple different things. Um, one is a belief in a, a soft prosperity gospel. Uh, not a full-blown do good things and God will make you healthy, wealthy, and wise kind of thing, but a softer version that says, if you love God, your life will be good all the time, or even most of the time. I know we would never say those things, but I wonder how many of us uh, beneath the surface believe those things. And then when, when difficulty comes, we're, af we're afraid to admit, to admit it, because to admit it would be to admit that maybe we did something wrong, maybe we're, we're not in, in the right. Well, don't tell that to the early church, and don't tell that to the millions of Christians suffering around the world right now who are loving the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. So if that kind of love God and things will be good uh, message is in your, in your soul or in our midst, we need to reject it. And a second factor I think that plays into this fear of feeling or expressing grief comes from the people around us, frankly. If we think the people around us don't care about or don't want to hear about our issues, uh, we're not going to admit our issues when we've got them. So I say this as a call to all of us in this church. If you're put off by weakness, and if you would rather not deal with other people's uh, issues and trials, then you cannot fulfill the law of Christ, which calls us to bear one another's burdens. And if you're put off by weakness, you probably wouldn't have liked the Apostle Paul. And if you find sorrow and grief distasteful, uh, just remember that Isaiah described Christ as a man of sorrows well acquainted with grief. That's our Jesus, well acquainted with grief. And the writer of Hebrews says that he sympathizes with us in our weakness because he felt it. So let, let's strive to do the same with each other, to sympathize with each other because it's going to come. Various trials are going to find you. And when they do, we need to surround ourselves with God's promises and with God's people. And then honor God by expressing your grief and hope. He is near the brokenhearted, and he is made strong in weakness. So that is, that's the grief of trials. Verse 7 explains one of God's purposes, and that's to produce the genuineness of faith. The verse 7 says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when God brings suffering, 
He does it so that our faith is tested and shown genuine. Well, how, does, how do trials do that? How do they accomplish that? Well, they do it by revealing what's beneath our faith, what we're standing on. When Jesus said that a storm will reveal whether a house has been built on rock or on sand. And trials do the same. They reveal whether our faith has a backbone or whether it's just reflecting our circumstances and going up and down with them. Then Peter says that, that a genuine faith is more precious than gold. It's fascinating. I mean, this was written 2,000 years ago. It's fascinating to think how gold has been considered so valuable for so long. Uh, the psalmist, I mean, think of Psalm 119 last week. The psalmist says he loves God's word more than gold, even much fine gold. Think of Solomon's temple, which was covered on the inside with gold. <clears throat> you know, countries used to, including ours, back their currency with gold because it has been so valuable. And in Kentucky, gold is a big deal, of course. Uh, I found out, in fact, that Fort Knox here in Kentucky is home to 2.3% of all the gold ever refined in human history. That is astounding. And the level of security shows just how valuable it is. So according to one authoritative source uh, named Wikipedia, <clears throat> the facility where this gold is kept is protected by alarms, video cameras, microphones, minefields, barbed razor wire, electric fences, heavily armed guards, and the army units at Fort Knox, including unmarked Apache helicopters, and, and on and on. You're not getting in. And if you do get past all those things, the door at the vault is 21 inches thick. So it's almost, you've got a two-foot door that is resistant to drills and torches. And the thing weighs 20 tons. The door weighs 20 tons. You're not getting into that place because gold is that precious. And yet Peter's point is that a genuine faith is more precious than gold. It's more precious because it lasts longer. It lasts forever. Uh, so both these things, faith and gold, become more pure and more durable um, through testing. But gold doesn't last forever. It perishes. Genuine faith is an eternal asset. The question for many of us is whether, in a moment of difficulty, whether we want a genuine faith more than we want ease and comfort. Because that's going to determine how we respond to the fire, to the testing. Can we believe in the middle of difficulty that God is refining us? And can we believe he's accomplishing something of eternal value? And this is where I, just to be honest, fail far too easily. Uh, difficulty strikes, even on a small scale, and I immediately just start hoping for circumstances to change. And I don't count it all joy. And I don't immediately think, God is making my faith genuine through this. But that, that's, that's where we need to go. That's what we need to preach to ourselves. We need to trust that God is fitting us for eternal life by breaking our attachment to this one. So that's what God is up to with our trials. If he deems them necessary, it's for the purpose of testing our faith and making it genuine. We're never going to know all of God's purposes, especially in the middle of trials. But we can know this, 
that he is crafting and molding a faith that will last forever. So as a Christian, when suffering strikes, you never need to ask whether it has a purpose or not. Earlier this fall, Anna and I watched uh, this documentary on the Vietnam War. It was very good. Uh, it can be hard to watch, so it is not family friendly. Um, and what, what's conveyed through the documentary is that a lot of people, both now and during the war, thought it to be futile. And the documentary describes this one struggle um, on what they called Hill 875. So Hill 875 uh, is this place in, over in Vietnam, and it serves as like a, a microcosm of the entire war. <clears throat> so on this hill, the Americans, the soldiers, were, they were ordered to take this hill, storm it and take it. And they did, eventually they took it, but they lost a lot of men. I mean, it was just brutal. And then when they got to the top of the hill, guess what happened? 30 minutes later, they were airlifted out. And one of the, the veterans who was on the hill, he, did, he interviewed for this documentary, he said, there was no reason for us to take that hill. It accomplished nothing. So by the time the war is almost over and these kind of things keep happening, there are soldiers over there who don't want to be there, they don't know why they're there, and they don't think they should be. And they've got a country behind them who doesn't really want them there either. So these soldiers get home, and this is, I think, one of the sadder parts, these soldiers get home and there are no parades, no one is celebrating them, uh, no one rallied around to the cause, uh, and no one wanted to talk about what happened. That is the opposite of how we should view our lives. We are never brought into something that doesn't have a grand, glorious, God-ordained purpose behind it, even if we don't know what it is. So, so your life will never have a Hill 875. There will never be a futile struggle in your life. They will all serve to refine your faith to be genuine. And there's going to be celebration when we get to the end. So look at what Peter says. He says that the testing of our faith will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He means that we are going to receive praise and glory and honor. We will be commended for enduring to the end. And just try to fathom what that is going to be like. Everyone who lives long enough, who follows Christ long enough, um, is going to end up with scars. You, you may limp across the finish line. I mean, think of, of the Christians that, on the other side of the world who are dying in total obscurity, and there is no funeral, and there's no celebration for their life. When Christ is revealed, there is going to be praise and honor and glory. If you ever watch the Olympics or um, some marathon that might be on TV, you'll, you'll see that these people run for 26 miles out on the streets, and they're often you know, by themselves, or there are not many spectators at least, and they're just grinding it out. It's difficult. And then you get to the end, and oftentimes, like in the Olympics, you enter this massive stadium, and there are thousands of people cheering and clapping, and I mean, it's, it's awesome. That is going to be the case at the revelation of Christ, and that will be our reward. So th there's no futility in Christ. And finally, at the end, there's no obscurity in him. Even if you die and there's no funeral for you, 
If you're faithful to the end, there will be celebration. One more note on this verse. I love the word revelation to describe Jesus' return. Saying the revelation of Jesus Christ uh, tells us what's happening at his return um, is that the invisible is made visible. So it's not that at the end he's going to arrive after having been absent uh, and letting us endure our trials alone. No, he's always with us. And at, the, at his revelation, we'll just see it for what it is. He will be with us. But we don't see him yet, which is what Peter describes in verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is really a summary of the Christian experience. Peter's he's commending his readers for their love and faith. <clears throat> and in doing so, he's, he's setting a standard for us. Uh, we have never seen Jesus. We do not now see him, but we love him, and we believe in him, and we rejoice in him. At least that's a description of what should be the case for the Christian life. Love, belief, and joy in Christ, even if we don't see him. And the seeing that Peter has in mind here, I think, is just the physical sight we do with our eyes. He's writing to Christians who were not around Jesus. They didn't see him, but they love him. And the New Testament talks about other kinds of seeing, right? Paul talks about having the eyes of our heart enlightened with which we see. He says in 2 Corinthians that we all with unveiled face behold, see, the glory of the Lord and are transformed into his image. He says that God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I think you have to see it. So there are ways that we see Jesus. And every time you read the Gospels, you are seeing Jesus. But what was true for the original readers of this letter is true for us. We have not seen him, and we do not now see him. So why does Peter go here after describing the grief of trials and God's purposes in them. Why does he go here? Well, I think it makes sense for a couple reasons. One is that uh, what he describes here, this, uh, the life of loving and knowing Christ, it's a, it's a fruit of our trials. If you walk with God through your suffering, you might just learn to love Jesus more than you love anything else. You'll learn that life is fleeting and often heartbreaking and that Jesus is neither of those things. That he's with you in this life, he'll carry you into the next one, and he'll be waiting for you there. That, and that focus on him, that love for him, uh, can be a fruit of our trials. And second, this experience he describes here of loving Christ, believing in him, rejoicing in him, this is how you survive suffering. And it's remarkable that Peter can say we are grieved by various trials, in verse 6, and we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Grief and inexpressible joy. How can, how can both of those things be true? Well, they work together. Suffering, with its grief, has the ability to just burn up our worldly dreams and to burn up our hopes and our attachments and they cause us to fix our eyes on Christ. 
So in a sense, the grief leads to the inexpressible joy that is filled with glory. And why does Peter, why does Peter describe the joy that way as inexpressible? Because it makes no sense from a worldly perspective. How can you have joy in someone you've never seen? How can you love someone you've never seen? And how can you have this kind of joy in the middle of suffering? It's an inexpressible reality. How could Jesus go to the cross for the joy that was set before him? How could Paul say that he was sorrowful yet always rejoicing? These are divine realities born from a different world. And really, the, the joy that you have now in knowing Christ is a foretaste of the eternity that you will enjoy that is going to be inexpressible and filled with glory. That's what I think that language is hinting at. Eternity is going to be inexpressibly happy and glorious, and we get a hint of it now. So you know, imagine a situation where um, a man and a woman are engaged to be married, and the wedding is in one year, and they know one another, but they can't see each other until the wedding day. And all they want to do is be married and be together. In, in that situation, wouldn't the anticipation for that day sort of work its way back and influence the day-to-day living until then? Uh, wouldn't it, it make the distractions less distracting? That's how it is with this joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. This joy that we feel in knowing Christ is not, it's not just a general happiness or optimism. Uh, it's a foretaste of what eternity will be like. And the glory of that future hope is meant to, to find its way back to us here, to influence our day-to-day life and bring a focus to our lives and an orientation to the future. And this joy, Peter says, will lead you, verse 9, It'll lead to you obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So the love, the belief, the joy that carries you through this life will lead to you obtaining the salvation of your souls. I bet that some of us read uh, what Peter says here. Though Though you don't see him, you love him, you believe in him, you rejoice in him. I bet some of us read that and think, I want that to be true more than it is true. I don't love him as I ought. I don't trust him as I should. I don't rejoice in him the way I should. And really, I mean, none of us could ever muster the love he deserves. But God designs our suffering to take us there, to stir up more love for Christ, more trust in him, more joy in him. Our gaze our eyes will never be too full of the glory of Christ. The problem is that we get bored with him, or we just forget about him, or we forget what he's like. Michael Reeves wrote this uh, delightful little book called Rejoicing in Christ, and it's a fantastic book. But he says about Jesus that if we know him rightly, we will find nothing so desirable, so delightful as him if we know him rightly. So what better response to to trials is there than to lift up our eyes and to remember uh, who Christ is and to remember who's walking us through these trials. So let me attempt uh, to remind you 
who Jesus is and what he's like. Because if we see him rightly, we will respond rightly in, in faith and joy and love. <clears throat> he's the good shepherd, and nobody can snatch you from his hand. He's the great I am, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the one who welcomes children and who casts out hypocrites. He was there when the universe began, and he upholds it now by the word of his power. He has no imperfection, and yet he sympathizes with our weaknesses. He is wisdom in flesh, power in person, humility in human form. He is the defeater of death and the conquering king. And he is now interceding for you so that every prayer you lift up in the middle of your pain, he is there to take it and make your plea for you. We don't see him, but we love him. How could we not? We don't see him, but we believe in him, because how could we not? Who is so trustworthy as him? And if it takes trials of various kinds for us to see him more clearly, then we trust God to do what he will. So if, if you're here and you haven't willingly submitted your life to Christ, then ask yourself, where else are you going to find someone like this? Where else are you going to find someone who's willing to die for you and then extend forgiveness to you and then offer you joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory? I'll just answer that question for you. Nowhere. You're not going to find that anywhere. So if you'll admit that your sins need forgiveness and if you're willing to turn from those sins and embrace him, all he offers, eternal life can be yours. You know who never seemed to get bored of Jesus? Uh, Charles Spurgeon. Um, Michael Reeves, in, in that book I, I mentioned, he describes uh, Spurgeon's last Sunday, his last sermon, as the, the pastor of Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. <clears throat> He'd been there for about 40 years. And at the beginning of his ministry, Spurgeon had committed or declared that he wanted his ministry to be defined by uh, a service of Christ and a glorifying of him. And his last sermon, uh, 40 years later, he said, It is heaven to serve Jesus. He is, the he is the most magnanimous, meaning generous. He's the most magnanimous of captains. There never was his like among the choicest of princes. He is always to be found in the thickest part of the battle. The heaviest end of the cross lies ever on his shoulders. If he bids us carry a burden, he carries it also. That's who he is. And no matter what kind of trial he deems necessary for us, he, will, he won't leave us to fend for ourselves. He will enter the fray with us. And he's going to construct our paths in a way so that eventually we will look only to him for such sustenance. So as we live here for a little while, let us, in the words of Michael Reeves, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for being so utterly trustworthy and for giving us a glimpse of 
your purposes in our lives. Father, I pray that you'd make us faithful students of you and of Christ, that we would sink ourselves into your character, into the things you have done, into who you are, so that when the trial comes, we can respond in faith, that we can count it joy. And Father, I pray that you would cause the glory of Christ to, so, to dominate our minds and hearts and souls. We want it to be true that though we do not see him, we love him. And though we do not now see him, we believe in him and we rejoice in him with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. What a joy it is to know him and to belong to him. Keep us, Father, in him despite ourselves, we pray in his name. Amen.